morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Happy Easter. Four, four of you are excited that it's Easter. Happy Easter. Yeah, what a day. What a day. And um, if we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm part of the team here. I just got to say, I am so grateful, so, so seriously grateful that you're here. I, I am well aware that on a day like this, for everyone in this room, folks watching online, I know we got folks in the, tent, uh, in the theater and in the gym. Thank you all for being here. I know that on a day like this, um, there are all sorts of stories and all sorts of reasons why we're here. Some of us are here because we are followers of Jesus. And um, the, the moment we celebrate and remember on Easter Sunday is the epicenter of your faith and your life. And you would not miss this celebration for anything. I know that that's a lot of us. I also know that there are some of us who are here because we were invited or, or brought with a friend or a neighbor or a family member, maybe a coworker or a classmate. Maybe you're here and uh, you wouldn't necessarily consider yourself a Christian or even all that religious. Maybe you're here out of tradition. You grew up going to church on Easter and maybe on Christmas Eve. And so you're keeping that tradition alive. I just want to say whatever brings you here, whatever your story, whatever your history, whatever your background, we, again, we are grateful and we are thrilled you're here. And our hope is that over time, um, you might begin to find home here. Uh, whatever that looks like for you. And in some ways, that begs the question, why am I here? And I know like the preacher person on Easter usually doesn't ask that question, but I thought it'd be fun. Why am I here? And the cynic in you is like, dude, you work here. You're supposed to be here, <laughs> right? It's your job. That's why you're here. And that's not incorrect. That's partially true. I am here because I'm a pastor on our team and I'm grateful for that. But really, honestly, that's not really why I'm here. I'm not really here because I'm a pastor. I'm here because about 20 years ago, um, my life was a mess. And it was a literal wreck. I'll talk a little more about that later. My life was literally in shambles. And somehow, someway, through um, the love and care and concern of some incredible guys in my life, I eventually came to encounter the risen Jesus Christ in a real way. I grew up going to church, but it wasn't until my very early 20s, about 20 years ago, that I encountered the risen Christ in a real way. And literally, he pulled me from the darkness of my life into light. That's really why I'm here. Not here because I'm a pastor, because I'm supposed to talk for the next 30 minutes or something. I'm here because this day marks for me what is um, the epicenter and, and the hinge point of my life, that which upon, my, uh, upon which my life really turns and hinges. So my hope for you, wherever you are on your journey, however spiritual or unspiritual you, con you consider yourself to be, my hope is that as we dive into the Easter story together for the next few moments, again, wherever you are on your journey, that you might open your heart and mind to the possibility of hope, to the possibility that there actually might be light for the darkness in which we find ourselves. So let me pray for us, and then uh, let's jump in. Jesus, we come to you um, with gratitude and joy and excitement in our hearts, but we also come to you bearing all of the weight and the pressure and the tension and the anxiety and maybe even the fear that we carry into this room. 
We bring it all to you and ask um, that your light might shine into our darkness, whatever that darkness may be, and that you might help us together collectively here in this moment and in this place find hope in you. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, there was this um, really famous painter, late 18th, early 19th century painter, British painter named J.M.W. Turner. And um, he is famous for lots of things, but one of the things that is most noted about J.M.W. Turner was his usage of light, his ability to paint scenes in which light uh, would be the main character. So I want to show you a couple of his paintings, a few of his paintings. The first one is called Snowstorm. Uh, and it's a painting that depicts ancient soldiers trying to cross the Alps in the middle of a, you guessed it, a snowstorm. And you can see the way Turner uses light here. You see, um, shrouded in the darkness of the snowstorm, you see this big, beautiful orange ball of light in the center of the sky, which is the sun. And it's a beautiful piece because there's a lot happening on the bottom that you may or may not be able to see in great detail here on the screen. But really where your eyes gravitate naturally is that great big ball of light in the sky, right? And you can tell by the way he's painted it that the sun is off in a distance and yet it sort of pulls you in as the viewer. And you'll notice in a couple of other paintings that this is Turner's sort of MO. This is the way he uses light. I'll show you another one that's a little bit more subtle. This is called Frosty Morning. And it's sort of a peaceful scene in Yorkshire, England. And there are some farmers uh, in, the, in the foreground. But off in the background against the horizon, you can see the light of the sun beginning to either rise or set. We don't quite know. But what do your eyes do over time when you stare at this piece? Your eyes begin to gravitate off into the distance against the horizon toward the sun. That is either rising or setting, right? You, you see that. Um, I'll show you my favorite piece of his. It's actually an early piece. This is a piece called Fisherman at Sea. And this is probably one of the most emphatic uses of light in the classic Turner style. It's fishermen at sea, obviously at night, and uh, the waters are choppy. You can assume that there may be some anxiety and some fear for these fishermen, even if they are grizzled veterans of the sea. The waters are quite choppy, and overhead are some dark, ominous clouds, and yet you see the light of the moon beginning to break through the clouds, and it actually illuminates the sea. And again, same thing with Turner. Your eyes begin over time to gravitate toward that big, bright, full moon in the sky. And it's a way of saying these fishermen, yes, they're going through choppy waters, but they'll be okay. They'll be able to navigate their way home because light is shining down upon them. Jenny and I went to a J.M.W. Turner exhibit at the De Young Museum several years ago, and um, it was my first introduction to Turner, and I fell so deeply in love with his paintings that I paid the, the overpriced price for like a coffee mug. I paid like 40 bucks for a J.M.W. Turner coffee mug, but that was years ago, and here's the thing, Jenny will, um, she'll vouch for this, I drink out of that J.M.W. Turner coffee mug every single mor morning. 
It is my favorite coffee mug. And one of the reasons is because it's, it's, uh, the mug is covered with Turner paintings. And one of the reasons I drink out of that coffee mug every morning is because J.M.W. Turner and his pieces actually remind me of Easter. They remind me of resurrection. One J.M.W. Turner expert, an art historian, he describes Turner's pieces this way. He says that in Turner's paintings, there is not merely light, but light leading the viewer in a search for meaning. That's why Turner, over the course of the last couple of hundred years, his works have lasted the test of time. It's why people still go and return to them time and time again. There's a way in which he paints light, that light itself is not the main character, but light sort of pulls you in. It tugs you toward a deeper search for something deeper. And to me, this is why it reminds me of Easter. Because I believe Easter, again, regardless of what you do or do not believe about this day, I believe that this day is a celebration and remembrance of a story that broke light into our dark world and with it brought true meaning. So let me read for you a part of the story from Mark chapter 16. But before I read the story, just a bit of backstory. Many of us know this already, but I think it'll be helpful. The moment we are about to read um, is the moment that three women are walking to the tomb of Jesus. But why the tomb of Jesus? Jesus was this first century rabbi, Jewish rabbi, who traveled the Galilean countryside teaching and preaching about this thing he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens and healing and even raising the dead. And he had grown in popularity so much so that the people at the time began to believe that this Jewish rabbi Jesus might actually be the chosen one. And by the chosen one, what they meant was the person God had promised generations before to send in order to lead God's people into a new era of freedom and flourishing and liberation. And so people began to believe that Jesus might be that guy. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested and he is punished and unjustly tried and eventually killed on a criminal's cross. And now this man they thought might be the chosen one to lead them to freedom and flourishing is dead. And with him, their hopes, their dreams, the possibility of a better day in the future. And then we arrive at Mark 16. This is what the story says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Now let's go back to the beginning of the story. 
These three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, the story tells us that they bought spices to anoint Jesus' body. This seems like sort of an unnecessary detail, but it's actually quite important. In the first century ancient Greco-Roman world, the reason you would buy spices like this to anoint a body, this is a little bit graphic, but it's helpful, you would buy, purchase expensive spices to, and the word here is anoint, but essentially what it means is to cover the body of the deceased, practically speaking, to minimize the odor of decomposition. So why is that important? It's important because these women pay a hefty price to purchase spices to minimize the odor of a body they believe is decomposing. Again, what does that mean? These women do not walk to the tomb on the off chance Jesus is still alive. These women walk to the tomb believing that he is definitively dead. These women walk without hope. Yes, they go about the business of purchasing spices and making the long trek to the tomb, but they do so without hope. They walk without hope. And some of us in this room, some of us watching online and in the theater or in the gym, some of us, if not many of us, know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to walk without hope. In our most honest moments, I think many of us would admit that we too often find ourselves walking without hope down these endless paths paved with the various trappings of various cultural versions of a meaningful life. This is not me pointing a judgmental finger at you. This is self-indictment. Even me as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, I too often find myself walking without hope chasing the various trappings of culture's versions of meaning and purpose and joy, and yet they always leave me wanting. Can you relate? Whatever that looks like for you, I don't know, success or achievement or image or comfort or convenience or relationship or the next job or the retirement account or the car or the house or the wife or the kids or the dog or whatever it might be. None of these things in and of themselves are bad, but we find ourselves chasing. And yet, often we find ourselves lacking. We walk these paths because at one time we believe that these paths would lead to the sort of life we long for, but again, many of us know exactly what I'm talking about. Over time, with our feet worn, our legs wobbly, and our bodies weary, we come to realize that the path is sort of a dead end. That along the way, maybe we got a lot of the stuff we wanted, but we still lack the substance that we need. My guess is that there are some of us who are here today because deep down inside, we feel that incongruence. Especially in a place like Silicon Valley, a lot of people have a lot of the stuff that they want. But a lot of people are lacking the substance that they really need. Maybe that's you. It's certainly me from time to time. So these women, like us, walk to the tomb without hope. But when they arrive at the tomb, they encounter something shocking, something surprising, and something that returns them back into the world with a brand new mission. The theologian Esau Macaulay, he puts it this way. 
He says that the women did not go to the tomb looking for hope. They were searching for a place to grieve. And the terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God. It would make them seem like fools. Who could believe such a thing? This is beautiful here. Christians at their best are the fools who dare to believe God's power to call dead things to life. There is a sort of foolishness to Christianity. There is a sort of foolishness to Easter and all of these songs and all of the symbols and all of the teaching and all of this. The foolishness pushes us to our intellectual limits, and you and I are left with a decision to make about the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is either a childish fantasy or it is the truest story in human history. There is no middle ground. With Jesus, there is no middle ground, and this is not to pressure you to believe one or the other, but the reality is every person on the planet thinks that the resurrection of Jesus must be one of those two things. It is either childish fantasy or it is the truest story in human history. C.S. Lewis describes Jesus this way. Some of you know this quote. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Now, here's what I know. Even if you intellectually believe that the resurrection is childish fantasy, and if you do, that is okay. I understand why. But even if that is what you believe intellectually, there is something in you deep down in the reservoir of your soul at a depth beyond your knowledge, at a place where your longings and desires reside, that wants the resurrection of Jesus to be true. Something in you, Christian or not, religious or not, something in you, something in me, something in all of us, longs for death to not be the end. Something in all of us longs for the sun to rise and to bring an end to the long, dark nights of life. Something in us, all of us, longs for new beginnings. And Easter is the promise of that possibility. Let's go back to Mark chapter 16, the the Easter story. Verses 1 and 2. The story begins and it says, Mark, who is the biographer here, telling us the Jesus story, Mark says this. He says, when the Sabbath was over, and typically we read Easter, the Easter story or the Bible in general, and we gloss over passages like this, but this is really key. Mark says, when the Sabbath was over, that's when all of the resurrection stuff happens. That's how he begins the story. Some of you are familiar with this concept of Sabbath. Uh, the English word Sabbath comes from the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew word Shabbat, which is also not just a Hebrew word. It's a Jewish practice, a, a critically important one. And um, does anybody know where the first time in the Bible, the first time we see the word Sabbath or Shabbat in the Bible? Does any, anybody know? Somebody said Genesis. That's a good guess. And it's almost always the right answer when you ask the question the first time in the Bible. Yeah, Genesis. <laughs> 
very early on in Genesis, right? Or you could say Jesus, even though he's not a book of the Bible, it's always the right answer. Just Jesus. I'm like, okay, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's right, Genesis. Genesis is the first place where, and Genesis is the very first book. It's the opening book of this library of books that we call the Bible. And Genesis is a long book. It tells multiple stories. But the very beginning of the Genesis story is actually the beginning of the human story, according to the Bible. It is a story of a good God creating a good world. And the first time you and I are introduced to both the word Sabbath and the concept of Sabbath, this idea of resting or ceasing, that's what the word Shabbat or Sabbath means. The first time we're introduced to this word and this concept is in Genesis chapter 2. And it's when God, a good God, has created a good world and he completes the work of creating a good world. And then this is what happens, Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested, the original Hebrew, that is the word Shabbat, he Sabbathed from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested or Sabbathed from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, those of you who are familiar with the biblical story, you know what happens just one chapter later. So Genesis chapter 1, God creates a good world and it's awesome and then the very beginning of Genesis chapter 2, he rests, he Sabbaths. But after that, we get to Genesis 2 and 3, and what we see is that human beings say, no, I'd prefer to have it my way, not God's way. And humans, spurred on by the enemy of God, they rebel against God and God's plan for their flourishing and for his own glory, and Christians call this rebellion sin. And so again, the beginning of the biblical story goes like this. In the beginning, a good God creates a good world, and everything is in harmony. Humans flourish in relationship with God, one another, and with creation itself, and then God Sabbaths. But after the Sabbath, sin ruins the story. And you and I live in the fallout of that ruinous decision today. The darkness we feel in our lives and in the world, the brokenness, the pain, the heartache, the, the heartbreak, the grief, all of it for Christians, they believe that it is rooted in this decision in the Genesis story. And so when Mark, the biographer, begins the resurrection story, the Easter story, by saying, when the Sabbath was over, his original audience would have noted right away, oh, I see what's happening here. There was a time way back when, when God created a good world and then he Sabbathed. But after that Sabbath, Everything went wrong. This is Mark's way of saying, yeah, you know that original story. You live that original story. But now God is rewriting the story. Because after this Sabbath, when this Sabbath was over, God is going to begin creating a good new world. 
In fact, he makes his point even more emphatic. Again, Mark 16, verses 1 to 2. When the Sabbath was over, when? Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise. On the first day of the week. When's the first time we hear that phrase in the Bible? You should know the answer now. Genesis. In fact, very early on in Genesis, you see a story where light begins to rise on the first day of the week. Really interesting. Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Interesting. This is Mark's way of saying, on the original first day, God created light to shine into and separate from the darkness. And he continued creating a good world, and then he Sabbathed. But then sin ruined everything. This is Mark's way of saying Easter is the story of that same good God on a brand new first day, raising the sun to shine into our darkness. And after this Sabbath, he is going to create a good new world that the result and the consequences of what went wrong on that early first day after that first Sabbath, that is now going to be undone on this brand new first day, on this new day after the new Sabbath. That's Easter. It's the story of a good God creating a good new world. You know, um, it should come as no surprise to you that I love Easter, right? I'm a Christian Pastor, I love Easter. But this is kind of embarrassing to admit, but I will admit it to you. And I, I went to seminary and everything. I never know when Easter is. Every year, like you, I have to Google when is Easter this year. You know? And maybe some of you don't do that. You just wait for us to tell you Easter is April 17. And you're like, okay, that must be it. What if we're lying to you? What if Easter was last Sunday and here you are? You're like, they told me. So, right, okay, so I have to Google when is Easter every year, like, and it frustrates me a little bit. Like, and I'm sure some of us have wondered, why does the date for Easter change every year? And it, the fluctuations, it swings quite a bit. Like, I've had a few years, I've experienced a few years where Easter is in March. You guys can recall, right, probably, and sometimes all the way to late April. Okay, there's a reason why, a really beautiful, profound reason why Easter, the date of Easter changes every year. Easter is on the very first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. And the spring equinox is when the sun crosses the equator line, and at least in the northern hemisphere, there is now a little bit more daylight than darkness in a 24-hour day. So the reason Easter Sunday changes every year is because, again, Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon when the night sky is most brightly lit after the spring equinox when there is now finally a little more daylight than darkness. Easter changes every year because Easter marks the moment that light broke into the darkness. 
The date changes every year because Easter marks the moment that, yes, life is still dark, your life and mine. The world is still a dark place, but light is winning. That's what this day tells us. Now, some of us are here, and, and maybe you're skeptical. And I said this earlier. If you are a skeptic, we are thrilled you're here. You are welcome here. I just want you to know, um, maybe you're, you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, like, okay, this kind of sounds interesting, but I still have questions. A lot of it sounds really doubtful to me. I don't know. What about this? What about that? Uh, we have something here called Alpha. And I cannot tell you how how much I love Alpha. Alpha is a space we try to create here, a small group of people who maybe like you are skeptical, have questions, and they get together every week, and it's a safe place to just bring whatever questions you have. Um, it's a space actually for skeptics. It's not a space for followers of Jesus. So if that is you, I would invite you, um, you can go to the web URL or just click the QR code in the chair in front of you and let us know. We'd love to get you connected um, to Alpha, okay? Um, 20 years ago, I told you earlier that the reason I'm here beyond, you know, being a pastor here, that the real reason I'm here on Easter is because about 20 years ago, uh, I encountered light into my darkness. Um, it, it happened a little bit like this. I was in my early 20s, and I was doing what a lot of people do in their early 20s. I was ruining my own life and um, <laughs> with just terrible decisions. Not all of us, but some of us. And uh, that's what I was doing. I had grown up in the church, but I had sort of um, uh, walked away in a variety of ways and was just making some choices in my life that were really destructive to myself and to others. And one night in December of 2001, I found myself um, driving home. I was on 680, and I was exiting the Montague Expressway exit. I'll never forget this. I was exiting Montague Expressway, and it was probably 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and I fell asleep at the wheel and spun my car out and, I mean, completely totaled my little 1994 Honda Civic. And uh, I remember I couldn't get out of the car from my door because it was completely bashed in. And I had to crawl into the back seat. It was a four-door. And I had to kick the back door open to get out of the car. My body was kind of a wreck. And uh, I had this old flip phone back then, but I could not find the flip phone. I remember looking at the car and thinking to myself, how am I alive? I mean, it didn't look like a car anymore. Thankfully, no one else was involved. But I just I couldn't believe I was alive. And it's pitch black, it's 2 or 3 in the morning, I do not have my phone, and I don't know what to do. There are no other cars on the road. And so I'm literally wandering the darkness alone with no idea where to go or what to do. So I just began walking. I just began walking without hope. And really, I began walking because I just needed light. I mean, literally, I needed light. You know what I'm saying? And eventually, I start marching down that expressway. And I don't know how long or how far I went. But eventually, far off in the distance, I could see the light of a gas station that was open 24 hours. And so I make the slow march to that gas station. And as the light of the gas station gets bigger and bigger, brighter and brighter, I can feel slowly but surely hope rising inside. 
I know that I've made a, a mess of my life, a literal wreck of my life, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but at least there's somewhere I can go. I finally get to the gas station. I tell them what happened. We call the police, and then I call my mother because I didn't know who else to call. And I remember waiting in that gas station for my mom to pick me up. I'm a grown man in my early 20s, and I'm waiting for my mom to pick me up. And I'm just bracing myself for the anger and the fury. But she walks in, she embraces me, we get into her car, and we drive quietly back home. And when we get home, the first words my mother says to me are, are you okay? She didn't just mean physically, are you okay? She meant, are you okay? And it was this absolute shock because I had, again, made a mess of my life. And my expectation was that she would turn me away. But in my brokenness, when I journeyed through the darkness into the light, she embraced me and she just asked me the question, are you okay? And that story eventually led to me encountering the resurrected Christ for the first time for reals in my life just a few months later. In the midst of darkness, I experienced light in the love of my mother and in the love of several other people who came alongside me and began to journey with me. Mark 16, the resurrection story ends like this. It says that when these women entered the tomb, they saw a young man. This young man is probably an angel of God. And this young man, this angel, is dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. The angel says, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. When the story tells us that this young man, this angel, is dressed in a white robe, that word white in the original Greek is the word lakos, and it actually means bright or radiant. There is no room on the planet darker than a tomb. And these women walk into the darkness of a tomb, and they are met there by a bright, radiant light. And this is the Easter story. That the darkness of your life, whatever tombs you are walking hopelessly toward, that you might find light there, shockingly and surprisingly. It reminds me of this beautiful John O'Donohue poem. It says, somewhere out on the edges, the night is turning. The waves of darkness begin to brighten the shore of dawn. The heavy dark falls back to earth, and the freed air goes wild with light. The heart fills with fresh, bright breath, and thoughts stir to give birth to color. That's Easter. Coloring that which feels so void of life. Light breaking through into the darkness. The heavy dark falling your lungs filling with new air. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whatever your story, wherever you are on the journey toward Jesus, I want you to know that Easter reminds all of us that no matter how long or how dark or ominous the, the night, light has come and is coming again. 
Easter reminds us that in the midst of our anxiety, our uncertainty, our fear, we can rest assured, you and I, that the same God who created a good world in the beginning is creating a good new world today, and he invites you to be a part of that good new world. This day, Easter reminds us that on the far side of our addictions, our depression, our despair, our pain, our grief, and our loss, the light that broke darkness in Genesis 1 breaks darkness again, yours and mine. And it is possible that the sun will rise on your life again, even if that seems far-fetched. Easter reminds us that despite the pain of broken relationships, broken dreams, and broken hearts, the chains of death themselves have been broken by Christ, and a life of freedom and flourishing is possible and available to you and to me now and on into eternity. And together, for that reason, we thank God for the gift of this day, the gift of resurrection, the gift of Christ, our resurrected King. Let's stand and sing together.